Hey friends, welcome to our Sabbath School Study Hour here at the Granite Bay Hilltop Adventist Church. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, investing in the Word of God. We have a beautiful study today where we're going to go in, learn more about the Lord and how we can put on the armor of God. But before we do that, I'd like to invite you to take advantage of our free offer. Today's free offer is called The Armor of God. And if you'd like to receive a physical copy, you could call the number 866 788 3966, and you could ask for the offer number 173. If you'd like a, a, a digital download, then you could text SH101 to the number 40544, or you could go to the website study.aftv.org slash SH101, and then you could get a link to a digital download as well. This will be um, a great addition to your study of this week's lesson, and I'm sure that will be a blessing for you. Um, before we go into our lesson, I'd like to invite you to pray with me right now. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your blessings and for who, who you are in our life. Father, today we're going to study this very important topic, which is about the armor that you provide to your children. Lord, um, there's just so much in here. Allow us to truly go deep and extract meaning and understanding from this lesson. I ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, this, this week, friends, we're studying from lesson number 13. Lesson 13 of our quarterly has a title, Waging Peace, right? This lesson this week is about one of the most beautiful texts in the whole of Scripture, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy going into it and learning more about it. Our memory verse comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, that says this. Ephesians 6, 16 and 17, which says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You know, when I was growing up, I always liked reading this text in the Bible and uh, just thinking about it, meditating about it. When, you know, I was a child, I was a, you know, very uh, energetic little boy and I used to pretend and, you know, imagine that I was a soldier back in the days and I was fighting the Lord's battles. I was an Israelite soldier, you know, fighting for the army of Israel against the Philistines. And so just reading this kind of text, it tells me that God, he, uh, he considers this, this, this reality of ours as a battle, as a war. And that's something that becomes very apparent in our, our everyday life. I mean, we see that there is a battle everywhere. And this battle is being waged between the forces of good, the forces of God, the forces of light, and the forces of darkness. Throughout the book of Ephesians, you'll see that the apostle, he compares uh, the church, he compares God's body here to, well, there's like different illustrations, right? We see the church as the temple of God. We see the church as the body of God, as I just mentioned. We see the church as the bride of God. And finally, here in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, we see the church being compared to a united army, a, a, a battalion that is truly waging. But our methods of waging war, they're not violent or aggressive. Well, they might be aggressive, but they aren't violent. These methods are the methods of peace. You know, it's said that during the Bill Clinton administration, uh, Princess Diana of, uh, of Britain, she went out and visited many heads of states of several different countries, several, several different nations, political leaders, rulers. Uh, she visited the United Nations itself, and she was making a petition for the prohibition of landmines, of those land bombs that are used during uh, wartime. 
Um, and she was fighting against it very vehemently, especially in the African continent where, where um, several people would die, hundreds, thousands of people would die because uh, these landmines would be forgotten and then people would just casually step on them and then be mutilated or, or die, you know, blow, be blown up. And so she was making this petition to, uh, to uh, just stop the, the production of these landmines around the world as a method of warfare, simply because of the toll that it would take on the innocent people, right? That would come after the war was over, after the conflicts were done, and these random people, children playing football, and you know, little kids playing uh, tag and hide and go seek, and adults just working, and these landmines would go off. And so she made these petitions. That was the goal, to cease the production the utilization and ensure the complete prohibition of these landmines. Now, the truth is that our world is a world in a battlefield and we have landmines everywhere. Everywhere you go, everywhere you look, it seems as though you can't wake up in the morning and leave your home that you are, you're, you're vulnerable to these kinds of spiritual landmines that are everywhere, seemingly forgotten by the majority of us, but that, that have been placed there by a very... Um, astucious and a very strategic enemy, a foe. You see, our enemy is the devil. The Bible has several terms for him. We have the devil, the dragon, the old serpent, uh, the roaring lion. He tire tirelessly works every day of the year. He does not take vacation vacations or holidays. Um, he doesn't take sabbaticals. And above all else, he's invisible. And you know that the invisible enemy, the one that you cannot see, that is the most dangerous enemy, simply because you don't know where the attack is coming from. Our enemy, friends, is bigger than we know. He's a lot bigger than we know. He uses uncountable deceptions and strategies. He can even come into the fortress of the soul and divide us against ourselves. Most of us have been brainwashed by propagandas and ads and slogans, mass thinking. It seems as though we can't think straight. We can't do anything correctly without a twist, without a wrong turn in our ideas. Suppose you want to encourage people to live a life of simplicity, of modesty and moderation in a world of greed and consumerism. We've all seen the way too many ads of Mercedes and Volvos and uh, Lamborghinis and iPads, iPhones, Rolexes. They're everywhere. This, the, the world that we live in today is the world of consumerism. We want to consume, consume, consume. And that goes beyond the, the, the um, consuming things. We consume entertainment and media. We watch, we watch, we receive, we receive. And that invades the spirit of Christianity itself because when we go to church in many occasions, instead of going to participate in worship, instead of going to serve and to offer ourselves as a gift, as an offering before the Lord, we go as uh, we go as consumers. We go to consume a product. In today's world, and I promise you this, as a pastor that sees this happening all around me, in many occasions we have members that come to church, but they never get to church. Because when they come, they're coming with the mentality of consumerism. I'm consuming. Oh, the pastor didn't preach well. The music wasn't good. The service was bad. I was offended. The, the air conditioning wasn't on. That's something that I've complained about in the past. All of these things that combined reflect our truncated men mentality of consumerism where we don't go anymore to serve or to give, but we come to receive and to get. Imagine, suppose that you want to encourage people to live a life of purity. 
of self-control, when mass media is polluted by thousands of movies and pictures and videos, ads that have stimulated and encouraged people to think that the only interesting sexuality is precisely the one which is outside of God's standards. How can you speak, for example, of peace and gentleness and kindness, meekness to those who have been convinced that violence is the only way to settle their differences? When we have been bombarded by slogans such as never bargain with weakness or survival of the fittest. When most of the games that are played by our youth and even our children are games where they blow each other up. They kill each other. They see the blood and the gore and all these things. How do you convince people that become used to that, that become numb to, that, to those kinds of, of visual effects and sensations? How do you convince them that peace is the best, always the best alternative? That kindness, forgiveness, forbearance is the way of the cross. You see, one of the enemy's main weapons are those small, conniving ideas that invade the mind and subtly gain control. Ideas that quietly lead us to think that the abnormal is normal, that the uncommon is common, and that the wrong is right. No wonder so many times we have the impression that the Christian cause is utterly and absolutely hopeless. We're just too few. We're too weak. We're too powerless. What can we do? We're so disorganized. What can we do? Our enemy is way too strong, way too great, way too organized. How do we fight an enemy that is able to invade and to manipulate the mind and put people against themselves? You see, sin isn't only mysterious in its origin. It's also mysterious in its nature. It's capable of bending us toward the very things that destroy us and the people that we hold most dear. Sin has this strange power of making us think that the right things are the wrong things and that the wrong things are the right things. It has this strange capability of convincing us to hurt or maybe not even convincing in a, in, a, in a logical, cognizant, active way, but of making us hurt the people that we hold most dear, that we love, that we would lay our lives down to defend. There's no logical explanation for that. And the reason is because sin as a disease, as a condition, it transcends the concept of logic. Friends, the followers of Christ are involved in a universal conflict, in a worldwide war. In fact, if you're going to live for God, you can rest assured that you're in for a fight. You're in for a battle. Living for God is nothing less than constant combat. And what's more is that Jesus never made any, any, Jesus never claimed that it would be different. He gave us no illusions regarding the journey that we started under his command. You know, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 tells us very clearly, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And flesh and blood here, uh, these, the, these stand for whatever is human. Right? Flesh and blood here, what they represent is everything that is human. Our real fight goes beyond the human dimensions. And that is something that we have to keep in mind. Always remember when you're being tempted, when you find yourself falling into sin, remember to do your best to see the tempter behind the temptation. Because that is the real enemy. 
Our real battle is not against the flesh and the blood, the verse says, but, but against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces. The powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces. Those are the real enemies. This tells us that our true warfare is within the supernatural realm. Not against flesh or blood. Your greatest enemy, it's not your boss. It's not that driver on the highway next to you. It's not the immigration, the IRS. It's not a teacher, unemployment, lack of finances, lack of money, an illness. It's not even your mother-in-law. That's not your real enemy. None of those. And so the question here that we propose at the beginning of our lesson, as we dive into the subject, the real question is, what does God offer us as defense against such a formidable enemy? How do we defend ourselves? What does God provide? How do you go your day-to-day how do you live the, the situations of everyday life, be that at home, at work, at school, be that on the street driving, be that wherever? How do you escape this monstrosity of an illusion, of a delusion that we see in the world around us when we open our eyes and truly allow the Lord to reveal to us the enemy behind the temptation, the tempter behind the temptation? What does God provide? Well, that's exactly what t- this week's lesson is all about because God reveals a lot. He doesn't send us out without any instruments of combat. Fortunately, the weapons that are made available to us are not of flesh and blood either. They're spiritual and powerful in Christ, used against supernatural enemies. You see, supernatural warfare demands supernatural weapons, supernatural help. And so this week's lesson is all about the nature and the power of both the enemy and our militia's weapons. Sunday's lesson gives us a a good um, starting point because it doesn't really have to do with the weapons yet, but the ones that are battling, those who are fighting, those who are waging this war um, and waging peace, right? Sunday's lesson is the church, a united army. Friends, the church, the body of Christ, the pillar and the foundation of truth here in this world is constantly under attack from enemy forces. And these attacks, they come both from external and from internal forces. Now, the external forces that attack us, they've always made themselves quite visible. It's not that difficult for you to ascertain or for you to determine who are the external enemies. Be that through institutions, philosophies, cosmovisions, external enemies reveal themselves in the daily routines of life. Be that through someone who provokes you, be that through a temptation that comes from a a definite source. But the internal enemies, those are the most dangerous ones because they represent betrayal from our own ranks, within the ranks of faith. External enemies, they tend to unite us. Internal enemies tend to divide us. Internal enemies are planted by the enemy to disorient to confuse, to divide, and to destroy. Victory in classic battles of history against enemies, classic enemies of history, have always depended on unity and cooperation of the army. Not always the army that was apparently the strongest or that had the most resources won, but the ones that were the most united, that worked as a cohesive group, as one point of action. 
Individualism in battle has always preceded defeat. This is an area of life where you can't, you can't want to be the star that shines. Victory comes through numbers. We have to remember that the enemy always acts as a united front. Our enemy acts as a united front. Enemies do not act in individualistic terms. They all want the same thing and they employ their forces towards it. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, Paul does not present the church in solitary terms as a lone ranger. And unfortunately, there are many of us who would feel, who would prefer to wage this battle by, my, by, by themselves. And I promise you, friend, if that's your mentality, you're likely going to lose the battle. We don't battle this, this, this fight, this war by ourselves. Christ never presents that reality in the New Testament. This is, especially here in the book of Ephesians, again, if you look at the illusions, the illustrations that God makes, you'll see that, you know, the church is God's bride. There's no bride without a relationship. There's no bride by herself. The temple of God, what is a temple for? It's for people to come together. The body of Christ, that's a big one. The body, several members that cooperate together for one goal. In verse 18, Paul urges them, pray always with prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Do you see the collective mentality? Do you see the group? For all the saints, praying for all the saints. You don't pray just for yourself. You pray for the worldwide church. You pray for your church in your country. You pray for the church in your region. You pray for your local church. You pray for your small group, for your small cluster of believer friends that together wage this battle in the everyday, in the day-to-day -day life that you live, combine and share together. No part should disregard another part that it deems less important. There are no less important parts in this battle, in this war, such as the elbow dis disregarding the seemingly less important parts, maybe like an eyelash, for example, or an eyebrow. The body would lose its identity and ability to function if the tongue despised the teeth or if the eyes considered themselves superior to the lower extremities. It's only in circumstances of cancer or autoimmune diseases that the body parts start fighting against each other. When the cells disorganize and start living suicidally in a kind of civil war, mutually destroying each other. Ephesians 6 10 through 20, describes the church as an army fighting together. The figures are drawn from the military world of the apostles' time. As the lesson puts it, thus Ephesians 6, through, 6, 10 through 20, does not portray a solitary lone warrior confronting evil. Instead, Paul as a general addresses the church as an army. He calls us to take up our full armor and as a unified army, vigorously and unitedly press the battle. Paul chooses to conclude his thoroughgoing emphasis on the church, which has included sustained descriptions of the church as the body of Christ, the building of the temple of God and the bride of Christ with a final metaphor, the church as the army of the living God. The Lord of hosts is what the Bible calls him. Since we are approaching the evil day, the final stages of the long running battle against evil, it is no time to be fuzzy about our commitment to God or our loyalty to one another as fellow soldiers of Christ. If there is a moment in history, friends, where we can't get this wrong, it's now. That leads us into Monday's lesson. After the description of the church as God's army, 
God's battalion, we have the first elements of the armor. In warning, the, Apol, the Apostle Paul, he, he advises these Ephesians to take up their armor. And the first parts appear here, Monday's lesson, where they're encouraged to, and this is in Ephesians 6, verse 13, to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, the very next verse, it refers to this buckle of truth. It says, stand firm then with the belt of truth. The belt of truth. What does that represent? Well, the first thing to understand is that the truth is not ours. It's a gift of grace buckled around our waist. A gift of grace buckled around our waist. So here, the apostle had in mind this leather, almost like apron that was um, that that covered the midsection of the Roman soldiers where they would place this this piece of leather to protect their vital organs right so the question is why is the truth seen as covering our vital organs why because the most powerful form of spiritual evil is the lie lies lies the book of revelation declares that satan that lucifer With his tail, he swept a third of the stars out of heaven. We find that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that says his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. We know all the elements of this verse, right? A third of the stars of heaven. What does that refer to? That refers to the angels of heaven. And these are then fallen angels that fall with him, threw them down to the earth. The question is, what does the tail represent? The tail was the lie that was used to drag them with him. That's what the tail represents. Because the lie is his most dangerous weapon. Jesus himself said that he is not only a liar, but the father of lies. John 8 verse 44 says the following. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So here what we're up against is the father of all lies. The, the greatest liar in the history of this universe. When he lies, he speaks from his own resources because that's what he is, the father of lies. And he has lies about everything, for everyone. There are lies about happiness, lies about God and, and religion, lies about values and priorities in life, lies about our families, lies about ourselves, lies about sexuality, lies about success, lies about, what, um, about, about intelligence and about science. He has lies for everyone everywhere, carefully crafted. You see, people rarely choose to do evil things for the sake of their sinfulness, No one gets up one morning and says, huh, all right, I woke up, beautiful day. I think I'm going to do some bad stuff. That's not how it works. No one does that. No one wakes up one morning and says, well, I want to do what's bad for the sake of evil. I hope there's no one like that. There very well might be in the world at this point, but it's rare. No. People do evil things. They do bad things because they have been deluded and mistaken and deceived by the false representation that evil makes of itself. That's why people do evil things. It's because they've been mistaken, deluded to the point where they think that those things are fine. 
It doesn't matter. And so subtly, one step by each step, by one step, by the next step, the devil will get those who fall into his schemes. The second part of the armor referenced here is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. You see, we learn all throughout scripture that by faith, Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. And we can be covered by, this redeeming, by his redeeming blood that saves us from guilt, from anxiety, from despair, from the weight of sin. This mantle of righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness, it protects us and guarantees that in Christ we are more than conquerors, as the Bible tells us. Covered by this protection, the followers of Jesus become invulnerable. Martin Luther, in his despair, he used, to say that, he used to say that he hated this word righteousness. He hated the biblical concept of righteousness. He hated it because he thought that righteousness was what God demanded from him. It's what God demanded from him. Only later did he come to understand what the Bible means by righteousness. Only later did he come to understand that righteousness is a gift. It's a present. It's not primarily what God demands. It's what God offers. And so many of us go through life with this mentality that God is a demanding God. And I have to try in one way or another, swim against the current in, 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 in doing this and doing that and doing that, gaining or buying God's, uh, God's approval. When from the get-go, righteousness is not what God is demanding. It's what he's, it's what he's offering it's a gift. It's what he wants to provide you. He wants to cover you with this. The only thing involved here is your acceptance. Opening your hands, opening up your life from the, the distance from God and allowing him to come in and live in your heart. Christ's righteousness is to be placed on, on us, upon us. It is sanctification that begins this to, to reveal the demonstrable effects of change. But his justification, his righteousness, is an offering, is a gift. After that realization, Martin Luther then went on to become a new man, the powerful reformer as we know that he was. On Tuesday's lesson, we find the following, uh, the following elements of this armor. The lesson introduces this part of the armor spectacularly. This is what it says. It says, a Roman soldier preparing for battle would wear an essential item, military sandals made of beaten leather with spikes on the soles similar to cleats to ensure stability on slippery terrain. Paul explains this military resource using language drawn from Isaiah 52 verse 7, which celebrates the moment when a messenger brings the news of victory to the people of the Lord with peace assured. You, all you have to do is, is, is think a little bit about what warfare must have, been back, must have been like back in those days. The army went off to wage war, to battle. It didn't happen traditionally in the cities itself. You see, they had these, they had the seasons of war throughout the year. And so these two armies, they would encamp in a valley or in a gulch or in a mountain, and they would wage their war. And back then, you'll remember, they didn't, well, you won't remember because you were there, but <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're aware that they didn't have internet, they didn't have television, they didn't have computers, they didn't, they didn't have, even have mail the way that we have it today. What they counted on was the fastest horse or the fastest messenger. And so when the text here celebrates precisely this, the it celebrates the moment when a messenger brings the news of victory to the people of the Lord. 
So that's the celebration, the news of uh, peace now, right? They've won. This battle is over. Eight times Paul emphasizes peace in the book of Ephesians. Paul celebrates peace as a result of Christ's work. He is our peace. And that is why in other places in the Bible, for example, in the book of John or in the book of Philippians, um, we, find, we find the description of peace as something that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that this world cannot understand. It can't comprehend. Why? Because you see, peace to the rest of our world is, uh, is, uh, is an external condition. If our country is at peace, if our city is at peace, if our family is at peace, it's all external. It depends on external elements. But in scripture, in the logic of the kingdom of heaven, peace is an internal concept. You can be in the middle of chaos, in the middle of the worst thunderstorms of life, and you could still be at peace. This is a peace that only God can give. You see, the world, it seeks recognition and power and stability and honor and praise and all these things. And all that they achieve is to destroy and live in chaos. But when you see God's followers living in situations that can only be described in the most horrible circumstances or in the most hor horrible of terms, and yet at peace, the question is, where do they get that peace from? And so many different circumstances and different situations in scripture that reveals this, this truth. Look at Stephen being stoned and yet looking up, seeing God. Paul and Silas imprisoned and singing praises to the Lord. How do you do that? Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he sang a hymn. Now we know that there Jesus went through his most trying moment. But after that moment in the Gethsemane, Jesus accepted what was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen and he submitted to it. Look at so many other examples. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those three boys in the fiery furnace. The way that they answer back to Nebuchadnezzar. That only reveals people that are at peace in their heart. Daniel in the lion's den. Even before the lion's den. When he goes and defies the order. And he opens his window and he prays. You can only do that when you are sure of who you are in the Lord. Peace. Peace. This is a guaranteed victory. The knowledge and the anticipation of final victory in the future. Christ is our peace. Here he's described as bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles. Those who are very far from each other who are now together. God is the peacemaker. You see, in war, a soldier cannot walk or run with bare feet. The gospel is God's assurance that we don't have to become discouraged or fall into despair throughout our journey. We're not striving to win a battle, friends. We're not striving to win the war here, to achieve victory. Now, that might sound kind of strange to you. We're not fighting to achieve victory or, or to achieve, you know, victory in this battle or in this war. You're just describing all of this in the terms of a battle. What do you mean we're not trying to win? You know why we're not trying to win? To achieve victory? Because it's already ours. It's already guaranteed. We don't have to leave our house every morning to win a battle or win, you know, gain victory. We leave our home in the morning with the battle already won and the victory already claimed. It's already guaranteed. That's the assurance of the gospel. 
It not only brings peace, but it transforms us into peacemakers. In a world of division, of confusion and despair, we already know that the battle, the great battle has been won. It's already guaranteed. Christians are called to be instruments of peace, to work within troubled families, in a busy office or an unsettling school as agents of reconciliation among people who apparently seem to hate each other so that peace can replace conflict, love can replace hatred, and anger can turn to joy. That is why the messengers here are described as proclaiming the gospel of peace. The church, friends, must wage peace by employing the arsenal of Christian virtues that are granted by the Holy Spirit of God. This does not come from us. It could never come from us. Originally, we're part of the problem. But in God, we become part of the solution. Humility, patience, forgiveness, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, practicing prayer, worshiping God. Such acts are strategic, indicating God's grand plan to unify everything in the, Christ, in, in the church of Christ with Christ as the head of that body, that cohesive unit of waging peace. In Wednesday's lesson, we find further elements of, uh, of this armor. This here appears in Ephesians 6, verse 16, that says the following, Take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith. The word that the Apostle Paul employs here as a shield, it's not the one that we usually see in, you know, in, in, in be that movies or series with Roman soldiers, these, you know, these uh, small uh, round shields. That's not the word that's being used here. It's the, the word here is for the great oblong tower shields with which the heavenly army is clad. You see, one of the most dangerous weapons in ancient warfare were fiery darts, fiery arrows. But because of its mobility and its size, the shield could protect no matter where the dart came from. And not only could the shield protect the Roman soldier himself, but in a, in a, in a, Roman, um, in a Roman unit, one of the most effective ways that they found, this is why Rome, the, uh, Rome was, was so powerful. They didn't fight individual, in, individually. The soldiers didn't fight individually. They fought as units. So each soldier would defend his left, his left side and his, his friend on his left side. And so his partner next to him would defend his left side. They worked as units. Those in the back would place these shields above them and they would go forward. They were like a tank. No one could stop them. They were unstoppable. Friends, faith can deal with the darts of temptation. But with Paul, and this becomes very interesting when you consider the larger scope of the concept of faith in the New Testament. Because to Paul, faith is always complete trust in Christ. When we read Hebrews chapter 11, we see what exactly faith can do. Because to us, many times we describe faith in abstract terms. As, you know, this idea, this, this concept, it's very ethereal, it's not very concrete. But in scripture, faith is something extremely concrete. It's something extremely real 
tangible. Hebrews 11, verse 33 through 38, it, uh, it, it, it proves this reality, that faith is something that we use in the day-to-day. -day. It says here that people, these heroes of faith, they subdued kingdoms, they worked righteousness, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the violence of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, they became valiant in battle, they turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They were wanderers in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. It's... Kind of funny story, the first time that I read that text and I saw the word aliens, I, I didn't know what to think. I was very young. Only later did I understand what the text was saying. But do you see how faith here, it has nothing to do with ethereal concepts that we can't really, you know, intangible ideas about what God does and how we gain faith. Friends, faith is something that you use in the day to day for all these things, to subdue kingdoms, to put to flight the enemies, women receiving their dead, people being sawn in heaven, going through horrible situations, but all in faith that God knows what's best. Faith is something that is meant to be used in the day-to-day, -to, -day, to be employed in your everyday, tangible, concrete situations of life. Be that at work, be that driving, be that at the market, be that. Friends, we are called to wage this war of peace through the shield of faith. And what's interesting is that it doesn't end there. Because again, many times when we think about faith, when we talk about faith, it's always on these terms. Faith is something real. It's something tangible. What a powerful defense against implacable enemies. Faith is the shield that turns away that turns back the flaming darts of evil. Because of our faith in Christ, we know that this disease will be cured someday. We have read the book and we know the end of the story and we may pursue the smaller victories of life knowing that the entire war has already been conquered. It's no wonder that the Bible tells us that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. The next item here that appears is the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation. Now, obviously, the helmet was used to protect the head, which is one of the most essential parts of the armor because the head is one of the most vulnerable places and parts of the body. You know, when I was younger, before I, I truly came to the Lord, I used to be somewhat of an athlete and I used to be a, a, a fighter. Um, I... I think I've shared this before. I, um, you know, in my wanderings in my spiritual life, I, uh, I began doing Kung Fu because, um, because I wanted to learn more about Eastern, you know, religions and, you know, Buddhism and, and all of that. And uh, I think I was about 12 when I began that. And that was my excuse. I wanted to do an exercise and, you know, martial art to exercise my body. But truly behind that was my desire to learn more about these Eastern religions. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, my parents, they, they allowed me to, to study Kung Fu, but uh, the, the teacher was Adventist. <laughs> he was a Christian. And so that kind of backfired on me. But I, you know, I remain in that. I, I truly liked the, uh, the art, the, the, the uh, you know, the exercise and the, the self-control. It did a lot of good for me in my, in my teenage years. Of course, without any of the um, oriental um, 
spiritualistic uh, religions, no Buddhist, uh, you know, um, ideologies or anything like that. Or, but um, so, you know, uh, later on when I got a bit older after that, I still, uh, I used to fight in, in competitions. And in any case, that was, that was a big part of my life back then. And I remember that, look, you, you, you could be punched or kicked in your arms and your legs and your stomach on your back, um, and you could still stay standing up. But if you get punched or kicked in your head, chances are very high that you're going to fall down and you're going to be knocked out. So here, the helmet of salvation is seen as something that protects the head. It protects the mind, the most vulnerable or one of the most vulnerable parts of your body. The helmet of salvation, what does that imply? Why is salvation seen as a helmet? Well, it implies that we are protected from the doubts about who we are, to whom we belong, and where our final home shall be. You see, far too often we're bombarded by negative messages. Wherever you go, be that at home, be that, you know, perhaps studying with your peers, with your friends, with your family, we are constantly bombarded by negative, negative messages that tell us that we're bad people, that we don't deserve anything, that we're worthless. I mean, if you just look around you today, you'll see that today the world suffers this, this, uh, this disease of self, self-worth, of self-image. Children and youth by the millions who, in wanting to be different, just become another part of the herd. That's where salvation comes in. Far too often, you have someone perhaps chew you out, um, speak bad of you, and fight with you, and imply that you're a bad employee, perhaps, coming from your boss, or a bad student coming from a teacher, or a bad friend coming from a peer or a colleague, a bad person, a bad customer, a bad teacher, a bad parent, a bad bad sibling, a bad spouse. And when these negative messages come, salvation is a helmet that can ward off the blows of confusion and doubt. Through the gift of salvation, Through the gift that God gives us us of understanding salvation, we know that God loves us to the point where he delivered his only son. Again, John 3, 16, for God so loved that he gave. He so loved that he gave. He gave his only son to come to this world to live our life, to suffer our pains, to shed our tears, to lose our losses, to bleed our blood, and in the end, die our death. All this happening while we considered him our enemy because he loved us. You see, to the rest of this world, self-worth is built on external elements such as money, intelligence, physical appearance, success, so many external and peripheral things. But for Christians, self-worth is built upon salvation because salvation tells us that we have eternal value, that we are eternally and immeasurably valuable. Our personal worth is derived from the value that God places on us, not not from what anyone else, whatever else places on us. We don't have to earn a price tag for it's always been ours in him. You see, there's this basic law of psychology. There's a basic law of psychology. And this law goes like this. The law says that you are what you think 
that the most important person to you thinks about you. Did you get that? I'll say it again. You are what you think that the most important person to you thinks about you. So it's not really, you're, you're not what, you th- what, what that person thinks about you. You are what you think that that person thinks about you. And usually people will mold themselves on those terms. What they think that the most important person to them thinks about them. And so the true, question, the true question there is, who is the most important person to you? Because if the most important person to you is any other human being, you are going to get hurt. You are going to be disappointed. You are going to um, be uh, deluded. Because people are fallible. People make mistakes. So if the most important person to you is another fallible human being, well then be careful and watch out because that person will disappoint you. Which is why it's so important for the most important person to you to be God. It has to be the Lord because he knows you. He made you. He's seen you grow up. He saw you learn how to speak. He loves you as thousands of parents times, you know, multitudes of infinities. That's how much God loves us. We can never understand. It's impossible to fathom, to measure how much uh, God loves us. And so when he is the most important person to us, then we are certain about who we are. We're certain about where we're going. We're certain about our, about our identity. So always ask yourself, who is the most important person to you? Next up, we have the sword of of the spirit. Now, this last part of the armor is described as the sword of the spirit of God. Now, notice the change in strategy. Okay, this appears here in verse 17. Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 17, that says, Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Again, notice the change here in the strategy. Until now, the the defensive items of the armor, they're what prevailed. But the sword is an offensive item. It's not a defensive primarily uh, item. It's it's an offensive item. After describing the weapons of defense, the apostle mentions the only offensive offensive power here in verse 17. And the reason is because God would never allow us to go out into the battlefield empty-handed. For offensive capability, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The very word of God. This weapon... It walked hand in hand with the buckle of truth because where the buckle saves us from lies, the sword penetrates with what is true and has no error, which is the word of God. But someone might question, someone might might ask the following, what can a word do? What can a mere word do? Because ultimately, that is precisely what God is offering us here as this, this, this offensive capability, a sword, words. What can words do in such a dire conflict? Well, not very much if what we're dealing with are human words. The weak and powerless words of humans. I'll never forget one of the most powerful quotes that I I read when I was a child that I heard was, words are wind. Words are wind. Human words. But the sword represents the powerful word of God. The same power that was used to create light, waters, stars, powers, laws, It's the very words that were used to create the existence of all, any, and everything you can imagine, and even what you cannot imagine. These are no ordinary words that we're talking about here. They are the same words that Jesus used in the desert while facing the temptations coming from the devil. The simple, thus saith the Lord. And it is written. 
The same word that called existence into existence, the bara of God. The verb that applies only to God's creative power in the Old Testament. You'll remember that at her last assembly in 1909, a frail, aged little old lady called Ellen White lifted up her big, heavy Bible and said, I recommend you this book. The Spirit gives you words to say when you do not know what to say. Life in the Spirit of God is a life of prayer, a life of studying God's written word in the Bible. It becomes a supernatural weapon to push back the powers of darkness and defeat them. Now, friends, in conclusion here, if the church is to be successful in this battle, it must be engaged in fervent and constant prayer. Prayer here is seen as part of the warfare strategy. This call to prayer can be seen as an extension of the militaristic mindset, as invoking God in such instances. This is something so constant in the Bible, invoking God's presence. Look at all the people that were delivered by prayer in battle scenes throughout the Old Testament. Think of biblical battles that were won through prayer. That happened so many times. Even the example of Jesus constantly in prayer. If he, God incarnate, relied on prayer, imagine us, imagine you and I. You know, I don't know, um, I, I think I've used this illustration before a few times, but um, perhaps you've been on an airplane before and, uh, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the most recurrent things on airplanes is turbulence. You know, the airplane shakes horrifically and, you know, sometimes you, you, you fear for your life. Now, I've, I've come to, to learn that um, turbulence is not all that dangerous. There's, I think there's three different kinds of turbulence. One of them is dangerous, but it's very rare, that kind of turbulence. But in any case, I was this one time in an airplane and the turbulence was so strong that it knocked down the oxygen masks. And so it was a super scary thing because, you know, well, that's, that's a measure of last resort, right? These oxygen masks are falling and you don't know if the airplane is falling or it's about to fall and something's wrong. And it just happened that it was a fluke. These oxygen masks, they, they weren't supposed to fall. They, the, the, the pilot didn't, you know, press the button or anything, but they fell down. And uh, that, that got me to thinking, you know, these oxygen masks that are used as measures of last resort, sometimes we kind of apply that reality to prayer, where we do everything that we can do, we wage our war, we wage our battle, we do everything else, and then we say, well, we've done everything we can do, all we have now to do, all we can do now is pray. Have you ever said that before? I know I have. I've done everything I can do, now all I can do is pray. That reveals such a sad reality of prayer in our life, because friends, if we're to take the words of Jesus seriously, prayer is not the oxygen mask. Prayer is oxygen itself. That's what prayer is meant to be. It's the breath of life of the Christian life, of the Christian journey. Prayer is not the oxygen mask. Prayer is oxygen itself. And if this army is to win this battle, it needs to be breathing constantly. It needs this refreshing breath of life that comes from heaven, this constant contact with God. If the church is, is to succeed in battle against the powers of evil, it must practice dependence on God. It must practice submission. The understanding that God is in control. Not you, not I, not our strategies, not our methods, 
not our great ways of doing things. This is one of the greatest deficits of the worldwide church. It's when we want to measure everything by numbers and statistics and methods and we have a way of doing everything and we are in control. Friends, control, human control is nothing but an illusion. Either God is in control or chaos is. And so my, my, my prayer is that we could always put the Lord in control. Because in the heart of every man, child and woman, there is a cross and there is a throne. I'll repeat this to no end. A cross and a throne. And either Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne and we crucify that old man, that old woman daily. Or we put Jesus upon the cross and we sit on the throne. And when we do that, friends, things will not go well. Many supposed Christian leaders start depending on their own wisdom, on their own resources, on their own methods or secular strategies. But the problems that the church, is, the church faces today are way too complex, are way too uh, complicated to rely on natural resources. These problems require supernatural interventions. The Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, it reveals this reality when it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Church leaders that depend on their own discernment, on their own wisdom, on their own resources, their own power and might have an, have an appointment with disaster. Human resources, they may have their place in this battle, in this fight. God-given gifts of intelligence and, and uh, strategic thinking. But ultimately, they're nothing more than feeble possibilities. As verified by scripture, by the Bible, the task is too great and the enemy is too formidable. Our wisdom is worth nothing before this enemy. We need to learn to, re to rely on the spiritual resources that are available because supernatural challenges require supernatural inter intervention and supernatural solutions. It's foolish to look at ourselves in the mirror and think that we have everything we need. That that's where the solution to this battle lies. The Lord, friends, invites us to prayer. He invites us into uh, companionship with him. Dependent, intense, persevering prayer and companionship. Because when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And I ask you, whose work is more efficient? Whose work is better suited to deal with the situations as they come. So my prayer for you, dear friends, as you study this, lessons, this, this uh, week's lesson, is to pray, is to put on the full armor and allow the Lord to change your life. Allow the Lord to use you as an instrument of omnipotence in his hands. And I'm sure that you will be a great warrior in the Lord's army. I'd like to invite you at the end of our lesson right here, again, take advantage of our free offer. It's going to be a great uh, resource for this week's lesson. It's called The Armor of God. You could call the number 866-788-3966. You could ask for the offer 173. If you're in continental North America, you could text SH101 to the number 40544 and get it that way. Or if you're outside North America, you could go to study.aftv.org slash SH101 and you could get 
at this, uh, this study, which will, it will amplify a little bit what we talked about today and what we, uh, what we uh, understand to be God's will for us, putting on this armor, wielding um, these battle uh, items of defense and of offense and becoming instruments of, in, of, of omnipotence and waging peace in God's hands. As we finish, I'd like to invite you to uh, say a word of prayer with me. Dear Lord, we live in such a convoluted world where it seems that everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, if not guided by your Holy Spirit, it comes out twisted. It comes out thinking wrong, said wrong, understood incorrectly. Lord, we understand that we are in a battlefield where war is being waged, serious war. We see the enemy on one side and we see light on the other. And Father, in the middle of the trenches, sometimes we grow confused and we stumble and fall. And sometimes, Lord, there is friendly fire involved. So, Father, I just ask you to help us put on your armor. Please, Lord, give us the grace of becoming warriors of yours, battling and fighting the good fight. Allow us to put on your whole armor, Lord, the buckle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, Lord, and wielding the sword of the word. Give us that grace. Bless your church in our world. I ask you these things not through my power or my might or strength, but in the name and the power and the might of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. May God bless you, use you. I hope you had a good lesson, a good study. Um, we await you for our next study here at the Sabbath School Study Hour. God bless you. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.